I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Okay, g'day everybody and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. My name's Conrad and today I'm joined live in the studio by a good friend of the show, uh, excellent, excellent friend of the excellent show. Friend of the show. <laughs> I've been upgraded. <laughs> excellent friend of the show, Nath. Here, I get, welcome to the show, Nath. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. it. It's great to have you here co-piloting with me. Oh. I'm honored. You're, you're I'm the honored. goose to my maverick. <laughs> and I, I guess you heard it was about sex and you're like, oh man, can I come? Yeah, I want to know more. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Nath, you've listened to a few episodes. I have. Quite a few. Yep. Uh, good friend of the show, but perhaps fan of the show. Yes. Yep. Take away the next disclaimer I give to new listeners. Obviously, welcome to old listeners. Uh, new listeners, welcome, but a disclaimer. The disclaimer, I believe. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I will. The disclaimer is that this podcast is not for everyone. Did I get that That's right? That's true. Why? Yep. Why? What? Hang on. What do you mean? It's why? not for everyone because some of the ideas that are explored on this podcast are controversial, true. perhaps tricky to grapple with. And some people might have a, you know, that feeling, that burning sensation that goes, oh, I disagree. I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. Uh, yes. Yeah. And for some people, that's too much. And, and they go, not for me, bro, stop, delete, whatever they need to do. Yes. And that's the design feature. But the mm. ideas digest process is when you want to stop listening and you want to go, this is not for me. This isn't my care chamber. I disagree entirely. We say keep listening. Mm, absolutely. And if you keep listening, then you're a part of the ideas digest practice. So... That being said, that being said, um, to the clickbait. Now, the clickbait we'll start with is, you might, you might like this, great sex with the Bible. <laughs> so I did that? I did. I, did. <laughs> I, uh, I kind of, having sex with the Bible? What? Yeah, I don't know what's <laughs> I happening. Don't, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. So, uh, but I think someone else might be able to explain it or maybe say it's bad clickbait from, yeah. from the get-go. I'd like to welcome a new friend of the show. Hopefully I get this right. Sheila Ray Greg Gregory. Pretty good, Gregoire. Pretty good. Gregoire. Gregoire. I did I did like listen to your podcast and, and you said it quite quickly. I was like, ah, oh, yes. Okay. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you. What time is it there? I didn't even ask you earlier. It's a it's a bright and early nine AM. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a guess here. I'm gonna have a assumption off the bat. I feel like you are Canadian. I am. I am. I'm very Canadian, eh? <laughs> okay, <laughs> excellent. Um, it wasn't that strong. I picked it up. But I guess Canadians are quite friendly. So that was they my are. assumption there. Mm -hmm. um, so if if Sheila, if Nathan and I were just in Timmy's, just getting up, getting some Timbits, getting a coffee, and we and we met you, you know, we were at the same, we were both getting a coffee. I was like, oh, Sheila, hey, my name's Conrad. This is Nathan. It's nice to meet you. How would you introduce yourself on that surface level, you know, get to know you type? Oh, I would say that I have the weirdest job in the world because people tell me that I'm the Christian sex lady, which no one ever grows up thinking, <laughs> you know what I want to do when I grow up? 
Like what I really want to do is I want to become the Christian sex lady because that's weird. <laughs> Career day would have been great for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been blogging about, about sex and marriage since like 2008. And I started more like the mommy blog, you know, the typical housework parenting stuff. And then as time went on, I started talking more about <laughs> sex. And the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew on the blog. Like who knew that people wanted to talk about sex, right? <laughs> So, who knew? I guess the internet knew with all the porn that's on there. <laughs> yeah. So, I ended up um, writing more and more about sex. And in 2012, um, the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex was out. And I've just been writing about sex ever since, but my focus has really changed in the last few years because I've been more and more alarmed at what we've been teaching and how much we've messed people up. And so now I'm trying to fix stuff. <laughs> Uh-huh. I really like that first introduction. Hi, I'm Sheila. Uh, yes, I'm the Christian sex lady. and it, But it's a, it's a great synopsis you've given us. But I'm going to be honest, Sheila. <laughs> Nathan and I, we've just met you in Timmy's. We've got our Timbits. Um, you've, you've been to Timmy's. I right? haven't. So I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, it's Canadian <laughs> Apologies, favorite. apologies. Hockey and, Tim, and Timmy's. Okay. Timmy Hortons, right. I've, I've been there, okay. Sheila. Okay, I remember Tim Hortons. I have been to Canada, but I wouldn't have called it Timmy's. Oh, just because yeah. I, I was what there for two you, weeks. You, uh, quick sidebar. What do you call it, Sheila? Timmy's? Like, t- uh, definitely Timmy's. Tim Hortons? Yeah. Timmy's. Oh, nailed yeah, it. Definitely Timmy's. Nice. Yeah, nice. definitely. Um, I used to call them Timmy's Bits, and they always found that funny. Oh, okay. Tim Bits, little donut <laughs> yeah. pieces. Anyway, okay. fun facts about Canada. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, Sheila, if we're honest, Nathan and I, we've just met you. We've, we've been judging quite hard. Mm. Um, we've made some assumptions about you. Uh normally we would just go away and be like, oh, judge, judge, judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in at Artist Digest, we're going to be honest about our assumptions and we would like to confess them to you. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. I love confessions. And, <laughs> and you, get to, you get to say yes or no. Do you fit okay. the box we've put you in or not? Okay. Yeah. We, can, we can give you some nuance later. For, Friends of the show have said they like it when I oh, try and squeeze people into the it. box. And no no answer after yes or no. It has to be just a straight yes or no. <laughs> so it's I'm, it's tough because you don't want to answer that way. Some friends of the show really that I interview really hate that, obviously. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. For sure. The Rob Bells of the world oh, really didn't, didn't like it. I don't think he ever said yes or no in any of his <laughs> no, answers no. either. So just straight into the interview. Okay, I, okay. Let's 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 do this, Sheila. Um so you did say christian sex lady but i'm gonna go with you can't really be a christian if you're talking about sex you you, you can't be a christian sheila yes or no <laughs> uh well that's a double negative <laughs> so... yeah you caught that well done i do that quite often <laughs> trying to trick him in their answer yes. <laughs> you you're not a christian so if i say no i am a christian i am a christian yeah, you say no, I think, for oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. negative. Okay, we'll say no. She's a Christian. She says, yes, I'm a Christian. Yeah. All right. Uh, Nate's got one. All right. My judgment is that you must be some sort of liberal. You're just like <laughs> a bit sort of anything goes. And this is an insult in America. Us Aussies. Is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, like, really? We, we're like, oh, liberal. What do you mean? Liberal party? Like, yeah, Whereas in America, sure. if, if someone says... <laughs> Oh, you've gone liberal. You've gone in oh, the conservative right, okay. world. That's a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, 
That's my that's my uh, that's my assumption there that you're some sort of liberal. Anything goes. Well, that's <laughs> well, that would be okay. There's Get a logical fallacy there too. I'm trying to figure which logical fallacy it is, but <laughs> the logical fallacy would be that anything Call goes. Me out. Call me out. <laughs> so I would have to say uh, yes and no. Yes to the liberal, no to anything goes. Oh, okay, okay. Canadian is is liberal that insulting in Canada, or is it just America? Oh, it depends if there's an election season on. <laughs> so. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. Once every three or four years, probably four years in Canada. Mm. I'm unsure. Okay, this kind of follows on. You might have half answered it with the no to anything goes. But, you know, you're talking sex, female liberation. You've got to be in this new age woo camp. Like, how many crystals are you holding? You know? <laughs> um, this is, what's this? It's not a crystal, I think, but it's uh, some sort of a stone. So I would say no, no to the new age. <laughs> <laughs> Points to a stone and says, no, I'm not new age woo. Well, if you're not new age, then you must be some sort of angry bra burning feminist. Mm. Without bras, mm. everything sags. <laughs> would not burn the bra don't burn it <laughs> would that would that be uh a no and, and yes i i'm personally a big Let, let's I'm, just go with feminist i'm in favor then. of underwire so i don't know <laughs> okay likes the underwear feminist just feminist oh sure i mean feminist just means you're equal so yeah absolutely uh, yeah comfortable yes yeah. comfortable yeah. yes all right um you let's say i'll, I'll do the the last one um you must be you. So if you, you've said you're a Christian and you must be using the Bible then for your own agenda, you just, you're not reading it correctly. You're using it to just talk about sex, how you want. No, <laughs> no. but yes, right. because right. I think that they coincide. <laughs> I think they coincide because when you actually go to the Bible and you pursue Jesus, then what you want often ends up being what he wants anyways. It's the same thing in some ways. <laughs> mm. We'll allow that nuance through to the keeper yeah, on the last okay. one there. Okay. <laughs> I, th- I think you did. I think you did quite, quite well there. Now, Sheila, we, you can give us a rating on this. The, the clickbait was great sex with the Bible. Um, you, you've definitely written a lot about this topic and I'm, and I think, uh, I'm definitely happy for you to go where you would like, where you find most interesting about what seems to be the broad topic of sex and Christianity. In your book, The Great uh, Sex Res- Rescue, I believe, is that mm-hmm. the one it of is. the books you've written? Yes. Yeah. And, and the tagline to that is, what was, what was it? The lies you've been taught and how to recover what God intended. Uh, okay. I feel like that might be a good place to start with like... What has Christian sex, I guess, typically been? And why are you highlight? What are the, these lies that you're highlighting? Okay, well, that's that's a big question. So can I start with a smaller one? Yes. Okay, let's just ask, what is sex? Great. Okay. Yep, go Because there. if I were to ask you guys, okay, so I should put you guys on the spot now. If I were to say to you, did you have sex Uh-oh. last night? Which I'm not going to ask you because uh, I really don't want to know. But... <laughs> <laughs> I was about to answer. <laughs> but if you were to answer, and if I were to ask you, chances are you're thinking of something very specific. Like you're thinking what I'm asking is something about penis and vagina, 
moving around until you climax. Like that tends to be our definition of sex, right? That's when we know that they've had sex, yeah, when that yeah. has happened. And what I would like to do is have us all think a little bit more broadly because that, that definition of sex is actually quite problematic. Because <laughs> if that's our definition, she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. You know, like she could be trying to decide if we're going to do pork chops tomorrow night or lasagna. <laughs> she could be lying there in emotional turmoil or she could even be lying there in pain and it would still count as having sex. So the way that we define sex, she just simply needs to show up. But it really has nothing to do with her. Like biological you're just saying that we define it purely biologically. Yeah. Did a penis enter a vagina and were there orgasms? And then the, th the thing that you seem to be pointing out that's never included is the emotional component or the mm. human engagement component. Well, is actually, that, that right? it goes even further than that because what also is not included is her pleasure. Like it, uh -huh. intercourse does not necessarily result in anything for her. You know, she could, like I said, she mm -hmm. could be lying there in pain and it would still count as having sex. And I don't think right. that's the way the Bible talks about sex. And yet if that's the way we see sex, then, then her, her experience is just a bonus. It doesn't even count. So how then are you defining sex? Cause you say, this is how it would be typically defined. Yeah. What's your repositioning then of, if we ask you, Sheila, what is sex? Okay, so uh, three things. I want you to remember three things, okay? So biblically, okay. if you read Genesis 4, verse 1, there's this really funny verse, which I remember I was sitting in junior high um, in the pews in church, and the pastor opened his Bible, and he read, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived a son. And, of course, all of us are giggling so hard that the, the bench is shaking because mm, that's hilarious. New means. Right. Like God, mm -hmm. like Adam knew his wife, like God's embarrassed of saying the real word. But actually what that word tells us is that sex is supposed to be deeply intimate. What you were just talking about, how there's this emotional connection. So sex is supposed to be intimate. And then sex is also supposed to be pleasurable. There's a whole book of the Bible about that. And we also know sex is supposed to be mutual. It says that in first Corinthians seven. So we have mutual, pleasurable, intimate. So the way that I would describe sex is any encounter, which is all three of those things, mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. And I'm not saying you can't have a quickie, like that's okay. I'm just saying in general, your sex life should be mutual, intimate, and pleasurable. And that means mm -hmm. that intercourse well, is probably- Well, a quickie might only change intimate, maybe, because it's a bit faster than normal, but it could still be all, some of the other. It's still intimate, like it's still- I guess so. It could, yeah. Okay, oh, no. sure. Yep. Yeah. So, I, so what I'm thinking is she needs to be important in this because if it's only one-sided intercourse, then her experience doesn't matter. And so what I'm trying to say is in any sexual encounter, she needs to matter too in some way. And it's got to be more than physical. And so intercourse is, yeah, going to be a part of that, a big part, but not necessarily the whole thing. And the problem is we see it often as the whole thing. And that's when we run into trouble. Okay, because here, everyone who's watching this, I'm going to give you a number. I gave you three things before. Now I'm going to give you a number. You need to remember this number. Are you ready? 47. <laughs> okay, you got that? 47? Here's what it means. Write that down. Okay, that is our orgasm gap. And what I mean by that 
is that in any given sexual encounter, like 95% of men always, all, always or almost always will achieve orgasm. The equivalent number for women is only 48. High achievers. So that's a 47-point orgasm gap. And the problem is that most women who do reach orgasm don't tend to do it through intercourse alone. Only 39% of women, we just did a survey of 20,000 women, and only 39% can reach orgasm through intercourse alone. So if we're defining sex as only intercourse, we're just saying, hello, orgasm gap, stick around for a while. And we don't want that. <laughs> okay, so I feel like that's not controversial. No, that doesn't in, sound controversial oh. at all. Even in the Christian world, I think even proponents of like some level of pretty hardline purity culture, they might go, well, of course, yes, it's meant to be special. Mm -hmm. We do want the women to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. it. It seems like when you're talking about the 47% orgasm gap, there, there's this, you're describing a disconnect between men and women's encounters during sex. Mm. It's something that everyone would agree with, but there's something implicit going on that you seem to be pointing at when you point at the 47% orgasm gap. Yeah. It sounds like, and when you're talking within the Christian sphere, it's not an explicit like, no one would agree with you saying that it, it's it's still okay if the woman's not having pleasure. Mm. They, they'd all go, no, no, we, we definitely want everybody yeah. <laughs> involved to probably even agree with those three elements that you yeah. highlighted. Yeah. Um, so what's going on then? Because there's, there, there is this gap. What are you identifying then as the problem? Yes. Yeah, so what we did was we surveyed 20,000 women to try to get to this, to try to figure out what was actually going on. Because I had been writing all this good stuff, at least I think it was good, for years. And people were still having the same problems. And then one day, two years ago, I sat down and I read a Christian bestseller called Love and Respect, which I had never read before. And I was blown away by the sex chapter because it said things like, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. And you need to minister to him sexually as you would unto Jesus Christ. Um, and sex ministry and wow. why would you not do something which takes such a short amount of time but makes him so happy and and the so had oh. five o's so he gets five o's and she doesn't even get one but <laughs> I mean, oh nice one i saw he did that <laughs> but like i just found it really odd that somebody who wanted women to feel good during sex would talk about the benefit that it takes such a short amount of time that that's the big thing because it seems like he doesn't understand how women work. And then he talked about how um, a guy will come under satanic attack if he's deprived of physical release and how sex is about a husband's physical release. Whereas women don't need that. They just need emotional release. Who is this author? Sorry. This is Emerson Egrich, Love and Respect. So it's the second best-selling marriage book in North America right now. The first one is Five Love Languages. Um, love and respect is the second best-selling and it's the, it's the highest, it's the best-selling marriage study that's done in churches across North America. So most popular book. And it's saying that sex is just about a husband's physical release. And so I'm reading this and I'm thinking, holy cow, no wonder we have issues. And so my team and I decided that we would try to fix this. And we did the largest study that's ever been done. I have an epidemiologist and a statistician on my team. My daughter's good in psychometrics, so we wrote this huge survey, 130 questions, 20,000 women, and we managed to identify four big teachings that are very prevalent in the evangelical church 
that really wreck sex for women. And the overarching one is what Emerson Egger said in Love and Respect, that if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. So the overarching one is really that sex is for men, not for women. <laughs> and that's the way it's been taught. Um, but then there's, there's much more, there, there's some more um, cutting ones <laughs> that get to the heart of different issues as well that are really harmful. Things like um, all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. So that, and you would say to that one, that one's really widely taught. There's a whole book series on it. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but the every man's battle book series has sold 4 million copies. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm -hmm. the thesis behind that is that men can't help but lust. And so, um, and they do it because they're male, like male sexuality is about the objectification of women. Um, and so what men are supposed to do is to get away from lust is to transfer all of their sexual energy to their wife. And then it literally says, once your husband quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. So ladies, you are his methadone. Whoa. And that's, there's a, there's a bad methadone epidemic happening in the <laughs> States right now. So that's not a good thing. Yeah. So like really highly sexy, right? Like great message to give to women. So um, that's problematic to say that all men struggle with lust. And when women believe that, um, they're far less likely to get aroused during sex, far less likely to reach orgasm, um, more likely to have sexual pain, and far less likely to trust their husbands. And what's interesting about that teaching is that even if she never believes it, if she has taught it as a teenager, she won't trust her husband as much when she gets married, even if she never believes it. So like just being in a church situation where you are taught you need to dress modestly or he's going to lust after you, even if you think it's all crap, it's going to affect your marriage. And I suppose that's what came across in, in this, in the 20,000 women yeah. survey. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if, because it, it, it seems to me like you're looking at data and you're saying, okay, here's the outcome mm -hmm. of the orgasm gap. And then here are these, um, what, so what's leading to that? And then you're identifying these different authors that have taught implicitly or like you're saying explicitly, essentially saying uh, women, sex is really for men. It's not really for you, but do your service as a woman and make him happy and, and, and help him even spiritually not be attacked mm. by the devil. So if he's, that's actually really like toxic. If, if he's having a bad day, well, did you have sex last night? Devil's attacking him because you didn't have sex. Wow. So it's this implicit like blaming of, of women, I suppose. And so from, from your assessment, what seems to be the theological, biblical doctrines that lead here? Because the stereotype is that the Bible has a certain very specific sexual ethic and they would say the Bible is purity culture. Here's your sexual ethic. It's conservative on uh, gay marriage, sex before marriage, how mm -hmm. it should look. Um, and that's the stereotype. But then the clickbait is like great sex with the Bible. So you're kind of pushing against that saying, I don't think the Bible says that you've outlined that the Bible you're, you think actually has everyone's pleasure and the woman's pleasure at, at the heart of it. Otherwise it wouldn't be mm -hmm. sex. From your 
assessment. What do you think is the theological or interpretations of the Bible that seem to lead these authors is there to this understanding where they're telling women sex is not for you and it's something you have to give to your husband? What What is that? Is there a common definition of God or is there a common interpretation of the Bible or Christianity? Mm-hmm. What do you, Where do you think it comes from? I think it really comes from a male-dominated idea of what sex is supposed to be and of what marriage is supposed to be. And let me give you one example. Here's the most harmful teaching that we found of the four teachings that we looked at. The one that has the most problematic effects is this one. A woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Okay, so 43% of women report that they were taught that from their church before they were married, that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. So what happens when women believe that? Well, there's something called vaginismus. And have you guys ever heard the word vaginismus? I'm curious. Yes, we actually had on episode, I think almost the very first episode ever, a friend of the show, Jasmine, who had vaginismus, grew up conservative and kind of shares her journey with that. So yeah. Awesome. Because it's... But for the listeners of the show that don't know. Yes, because it's actually a word that a lot of people don't know. It's funny because we all know what erectile dysfunction is, right? Like everybody knows what erectile dysfunction is. Very few people know vaginismus. And yet if you look at couples under the age of 40, vaginismus is way more common. And among religiously conservative people, we have twice the rate of vaginismus than the general population. And this has been known for like 60 years. Like if you look back at gynecological academic journals from the 1960s and 70s, they talk about this. So people have known this for years, okay? (laughs) And what vaginismus is, you guys already know, but I'll tell for your listeners, it's a sexual dysfunction disorder where the the walls of um, the vagina are so tight and they can't relax those muscles that it makes penetration really painful, if not impossible. And when a woman believes the obligation sex message, her chance of having vaginismus increases by just about the same amount as if she had been sexually abused. Okay. So there's almost no statistical difference. So you can imagine how much sexual abuse would hurt a woman. Well, the obligation sex message does almost the same thing. It's like our bodies interpret it as trauma because what it's saying to us is your needs don't matter. He has the right to use you whenever he wants. And so your body interprets that as saying you don't matter. But where does that idea come from? And this is what you were getting at. Like, is there some sort of biblical underpinning of all this? And I would say there is. And I think it's a really misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5. Um, And what those verses say are that um, the husband has to fulfill his marital duties to the wife and likewise the wife to the husband and the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband and the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. And then we get to the famous part, do not deprive each other except for a time and by mutual consent that you might devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together again so that you won't be tempted by your lack of self-control. And people have used those verses to say to women, see, you're not supposed to deprive, so you can't say no. But that is absolutely not what that passage is saying. And it's just so interesting that that's how it's been distorted. Because like Paul wrote that, 
Well, the Apostle Paul wrote it in Roman times. And in Roman times, um, husbands had absolute authority over their wives' bodies to the extent that they could murder them if they wanted and they wouldn't be prosecuted. So for Paul to say that the wife's body belongs to the husband, that's not a big deal. Everybody already knew that. But Paul turned around and said the husband's body belongs to the wife in the same way. And the only time he ever actually explicitly mm. talks about authority in marriage is in this passage where it says the husband has authority over the wife's body and vice versa. So the only time he ever talks about authority in marriage explicitly is here and it's totally equal. So what Paul is saying is not, hey, you're not allowed to say no if he wants intercourse. Paul is saying a mutual, pleasurable, intimate sex life should be part of your life together. But he's not saying you can't say no to sex. It doesn't say do not refuse. And also one-sided intercourse doesn't count as sex. So guys can't go around saying, mm -hmm. hey, I'm entitled to sex. Like, what is that? That's not of Jesus. That's just really childish. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the mm -hmm. Apostle Paul is talking about. It sounds like, I guess, most deviations of Christian denominations and biblical understandings comes from like digging into the definitions of how it becomes interpreted. And it, it sounds as if when you place what's happened is what I'm hearing you describe is that there's a context with which, you know, these texts were written that gets ignored by modern, mm -hmm. let's say conservative Protestantism or whichever denominations kind of interpret the Bible that way. But then the invisible lens they apply is the modern patriarchal society. Like the, it's, it's not quite as, you know, patriarchal as Paul's day, but by missing that, like how patriarchal Paul's day was and not knowing that we're applying this, like, cause I can imagine some people saying, yeah, but it's both. It's both. It's like it, the same standard applies to the men, but you, you kind of saying we implicit or the context in which we keep interpreting that, we never apply it equally. It's always brought up to, hey, women, you need to, mm -hmm. rather than it's truly being applied as equal. Whereas you're saying it's actually even more radical than the equal if you put it into the context of where it came from, saying this is a society where you can do abusive things to your wife. And Paul's saying, actually, she has that same power over you. So it's mm -hmm. like a, it's, it's, it's more extreme when you put it in the context, mm -hmm. but it seems like we get to where you're speaking about because there is no context and because we're unaware of the male dominated society in which we keep interpreting these texts. How does that sound? Yeah, that's exactly right. In that we do, we, we're interpreting it through our lens and our lens is very much male dominated. You know, so we, we surveyed these 20,000 women, right? And then we also looked at what are the 10 best selling marriage and sex books. Now we only looked like, like in the States, so I don't know what it's like in Australia. Maybe there's some best-selling ones in Australia that we missed out on. Um, but we were looking at the best-selling ones in, in the U.S. And um, if you look at those 13 books and um, you try to see who wrote them, it's amazing how many of them were written by white guys who are now between the ages of 70 and 90. Like almost all of them. And some of the men have since mm. passed away. What led you here? Is this the study of, of some of this stuff? Was there a, a personal element, like an experience? Mm -hmm. Is it just your interest in the Bible and you're like, oh, well, I just came across this and mm -hmm. I learned that? What, what is it that brought you to this point and wanting to survey 20,000 women? I, I towed the party line for a really long time. 
Like, I have never believed that husbands are given some sort of special status in marriage that wives are not. I've always believed that husbands and wives are equal, that marriage should be a real partnership. And that's what my husband and, have always, and I have always had. We've been married 30 years this year. Um, we've always decided everything together. It's, it's, we've had a great marriage. But we've also been speaking at marriage conferences for years. And when we started, we were in our late 30s. And we weren't as confident then. And we were given this curriculum that we had to teach. And I'm reading this stuff about how he needs respect in a way that you don't. And what you really need is love and communication. And my husband's the one who is more feely than I am. Like I'm the thinker. He's the one who's more touchy than me. And it was also gendered. And yet I taught it because that's what I just thought you were supposed to do. And so I was teaching stuff I wasn't really believing. Um, and then over the years, it just, it just didn't sit well with me. And the more that I started listening to other women, the more I realized there's something really wrong with the way we talk about this stuff. And then two years ago when I sat down and I read like one of our bestsellers, Love and Respect, and I realized how badly it treated this whole area, I just realized we've got to do something. Like we've got to stop giving really bad advice that doesn't work and that actually hurts people. Was there a belief that you had to let go of or a belief or interpretation that you had to accept? Uh, because people might go through, you know, an example would be the doctrine of biblical inerrancy some some friends of the show we've had on they said well once i un once i kind of deleted that and went well maybe it's not completely inerrant in the way i thought then a whole new world opened up is there any part of your journey where you can identify i suppose a gateway drug where it's you go okay i, I now don't believe this idea and that's opened up the floodgates to everything else or i, ha I do now accept this idea and that opens up the floodgates i wouldn't say it's necessarily a recent thing I think the biggest the biggest floodgate for me was really when I was 16 and I um I've always loved God but I realized that if God if God truly loved men more than he loved women I didn't know if I could serve him like I really didn't know what I was going to do I thought I totally believe in God but how am I supposed to live with a God who doesn't think I'm as valuable because I'm a girl and I went through this whole existential crisis. I was almost suicidal. And then um, my aunt gave me some great books on how to interpret the Greek and some of the problematic passages. And I, I really came through that and saw, no, you know what? This is not what this is saying. And when I realized Jesus' heart for women, that really changed. My problem was I didn't walk in it. Like I was still right in the middle of this conservative evangelical Christian bubble for so long. So even though that's what I believed, I didn't really live it out. And so I think for me, it's not so much changing my mind as just giving myself permission to, to be courageous and like not try to hide it anymore. Um, because for years, I was so afraid of saying what I really thought because I was trying to get a platform. I was trying to make my name in the Christian marriage world and everyone else teaches that, you know, men get to make the final decision. And so if I started saying that, I don't actually think that I was afraid I was going to get blacklisted. And I mm -hmm. guess I just decided I didn't care. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. That's an interesting, like practical reality we're all up against is that, that power of the almighty algorithm, whether it's a literal algorithm on social media or whether it's, if I say this, and because it sounds like you've been in this field a while, so your paycheck, I suppose, depends on it. Like 
pastor's paycheck depends on them believing certain doctrines within that mm. church. And it sounds like you face that same pressure. Yeah, although you guys might understand this as Aussies because um, <laughs> the nice thing about being Canadian is that I'm not as into the American evangelical world as everyone mm. else. So I had this really big blog that was doing really well to love, honor, and vacuum. That's still my blog. My podcast was doing well, but I wasn't speaking at conferences in the same way that most marriage speakers do because I'm Canadian. Um, and I just wasn't as well known in the US. So even though my blog was huge, I wasn't well known by the pastors because I wasn't in the typical American scene. And so I, I was building this big audience, not because pastors were telling people who I was, but because I was attracting readers on the internet. And so because of that, I kind of mm. had the freedom to say things that a lot of people don't because I'm not reliant on the conference circuit. I'm not reliant on mm. the American evangelical world. And so the very first thing we did, like the, the whole reason we did our survey was because we tried to go to focus on the family and tell focus on the family that love and respect promotes abuse, which it does. That's a whole other story we haven't even gone into, but the book is highly problematic with how it deals with abuse. And we had hundreds of stories of women who had been abused and we went to focus on the family and we said, you guys promote this book, you need to stop. And they totally ignored us. Like mm. completely and utterly ignored mm. us. And so we just decided that we were going to do the largest survey that's ever been done because they might ignore a couple of hundred, but can they really ignore 20,000? Now I think they will. They have, they've totally ignored us since the book came out still, but, <laughs> but at least, you know, at least it's going to make them look bad. And eventually I think they're going to have to account for that. So, yeah, I suppose you highlighting, I think what Josh Harris spoke about in the podcast, those incentive structures that go mm. focus on the family. It seems to be like, it's almost like on one level you're talking about different doctrinal interpretations, but then you're also up against a established machine. Yeah. You know, this mm. established uh, evangelical capital business corporation machine and it focuses on the family, changes the stance on something. They stand to lose a lot of money. And I guess that seems to be the incentive structures that are at play that you are highlighting a little bit there. I want to come to what is... What is the rescue then? When you're talking about like rescuing sex, what does that lifeboat look like? We just want women especially, but men too, to realize that sex is supposed to be something which is just as much for women and that it is supposed to be something which is stupendous in your marriage. Like it honestly can be amazing. And what we want women and men to realize is that if it isn't amazing, she is not broken. Like, it's not that her clitoris doesn't work or that her vagina doesn't work because that's what a lot of women feel. They feel like, no, everyone else can feel good, mm -hmm. but I, somehow my body is broken. That is probably mm -hmm. not it. What we found is that when you believe these certain teachings, sex is worse. And so if we can just let go mm -hmm. of those teachings and realize what it's supposed to be and learn how to get there, then this really can be something which is beautiful in your marriage because a lot of people are just really disappointed in their sex lives. You know, none of us get married thinking, oh, I really want ho-hum sex at best. Like most of us want really passionate lives and yet that's not what a lot of us get. And so we just want to show people that is possible and 
here's a way through. And it might mean deconstructing a lot of things you've been taught and understanding that you don't need to have sex under threat. You're not responsible for his sin. This is something that's totally for you. And what women have told us is that reading the book makes them feel so validated. And what men have told us, I've, we've had so many men read this thing saying, it's like the most dignified anyone's ever t- treated us in men in marriage books, because most marriage books treat us like we're lust monsters. And, you know, mm-hmm. guys are better than that. Guys are not more sinful just because they're guys. Like, guys are good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why our books treat guys like they're animals. Sheila, does this translate at all into secular culture? Like, does does this stuff, is this, I suppose, like knowledge and, and data that you've got, does this translate at all into, into people's lives that perhaps don't read the Bible or um, aren't engaging in sort of the Christian narrative or anything like that? Absolutely, because a lot of the teachings that we have are also distortions that are in the secular world. So for instance, one of the, one of the teachings that really hurts women too is when um, teen girls are told, boys will push your sexual boundaries. Okay, boys are going to push your sexual boundaries, and so you need to be careful. So when teen girls believe that, what happens is when you're in a dating situation, you're just hypervigilant because you feel like I need to stay in control at all times. So you're making out with a guy, and he's thinking, this is so much fun, and he's having a great old time. And what she's thinking is, is he breathing too hard? Do I need to stop him yet? Where are his hands going? And so she's she's being hypervigilant, thinking about what he's doing. She's not thinking about what she's experiencing. And then when she gets married, she doesn't know how to reintegrate with her body. And that's something which is really common in secular culture too, because in secular culture, we also can believe like the guy is uncontrollable and so she has to put the brakes on. And that's not a healthy message in the church or out of the church. You know, a far healthier message. Is, that an, is there an element of truth in that, though? Is, is there an element of truth? Like just with, you know, with s- statistics, I suppose, and even like within Australia, there's lots of, uh, I suppose, this national widespread sexual abuse claims, even within Parliament and all that yeah. kind of stuff, that that men aren't And treating, it is always men. Yeah, yeah. Men yeah. aren't treating women well yeah. and therefore... Um, you know, uh, yeah. therefore they need to be held accountable and, and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose like, yeah. it, is there an element of, of that sort of like women do need to be vigil, vigilant in this? Is there an element of truth to that? And is there something that I suppose men can learn from this in particular, as opposed to women shouldn't feel scared or worried about mm-hmm. men? Yeah, well, here's what we try to do in the book is we tell you the teaching And then we tell you, here's how you can rescue and reframe it. Okay, so here's the teaching Mm -hmm. that's harmful. Boys will push your sexual boundaries. Here's how we could say that Mm -hmm. in a healthy way. Okay, it's normal to have sexual feelings. But what you need to decide is what your boundaries are. And then you need to make plans to stay within those boundaries. But even more importantly, you need to honor the boundaries of the person that you're with. And if you are ever with someone who does not honor your boundaries, that is a red flag that that relationship is not healthy. And that's like a healthy thing to tell teens. What we're telling teens now is all boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. And so 
then girls have no way of recognizing what a red flag is because they think that's normal. And what we need to say is, no, that isn't normal. That isn't okay. Yes, it might happen, but it's, but when it happens, realize it's not okay. And by the way, and, and I, and I do want to say too, yeah. And I do want to say girls can also push boys sexual boundaries. So boys need to learn that message as well <laughs> that they don't, they don't need to be pushed mm, either. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it seems like a lot of like the conversations from a lot of the friends of the show we have. And I think what a lot of people are, are, are pushing against as a large scale narrative is, is the boxes we put people in like in the beginning when when i'm trying to squeeze sheila into two boxes what you seem to be highlighting and this is the difficulty and this is i guess the ideas digest practice is as sheila you're pointing out that this uh taught distrust of men and intimacy uh trains women in a way that it's hard for them to recover later and it internalizes a sense of trauma and distrust in men um, but you're also highlighting there's, there's like extremes on either end. You've got the me too movement with men in power. You've got parliament problems in mm -hmm. Australia where men in power mm -hmm. abuse and use their power for sexual exploitation mm -hmm. essentially. And that's true. And, and funnily enough, that's exclusively men because mm. well, is it only because men are in power? Would women do the same thing if mm. they had just as much power? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I maybe another survey <laughs> could, could answer that one, but that's like the truth over there. And then you've got the conservative Christian world, which has like a different set of difficulties where it's going, here's your purity culture. And here's how we're going to say all men are like this. And you're trying to navigate these, these two um, difficult extremes. Uh, one question I would have is people would be asking, and I think Abigail kind of alluded to this question in the live chat. Why, why bother with the Bible? Many, many uh, ex-evangelicals or ex-Christians mm -hmm. who've been harmed by this purity culture type of message have just gone, you know what, if I ditch this Bible, if I ditch this teaching, all these people read this book and come out with an oppressive sexual ethic towards women, particularly, and even friend of the show, Blair, didn't have a, a great time with the purity culture he grew up with as well. So why not just ditch the Bible? It to to improve the sexual ethic. Why why do you still hold on to the Bible as something worth holding on to? Because I can't let go of Jesus. <laughs> I tot I totally understand people who have been really hurt. Um, and there's been times I've wanted to walk away because it's been really what I found so difficult in the last year, as we've been talking out more and more, is how the powers that be in evangelicalism don't care. And, and that is hurtful. And I totally understand wanting to ditch the Bible because of that. But I, I can't ditch Jesus. And I can't believe, I don't want to let them win. I guess that's it for me. I don't want to let them win. Because I don't think their interpretation mm -hmm. is right. And I think there's some beauty that we're really missing out on. And I just feel so much for the women, especially who are still in that. And I want to tell them that it doesn't need to be that way. You know, um, mm -hmm. one of the things which really made me the most sad um, in when we did look at the best-selling books is the one conversation that was completely missing from our evangelical bestsellers. And it's the conversation about consent. 
it never shows mm. up. Like they never mm. ever talk about marital rape or about consent in marriage. Um, and that should just not be possible, <laughs> but that's what's going on. And in fact, a lot of books had anecdotes of rape and marital rape and didn't even call it that. Like, um, there was one stupid thing that the book His Needs, Her Needs said. It described a 32-year-old who was frustrated and saying, I wish my husband, my wife wanted to make love more. You know, I feel like I'm begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. And, you know, rape and sex do not sound the same or feel the same. And if you think you're raping your wife, you probably are and you should stop. <laughs> but they just don't ever say anything about that. And that should not mm. be acceptable. I don't know why that's acceptable. And so mm. all I'm asking mm -hmm. is that we start realizing that consent is a thing and a wedding ring does not mean you've consented for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does the Bible, back to the clickbait, does the Bible actually improve sex over a sexual ethic without it? Is, is there something that you're talking about that can only be found with a, with a sexual ethic that's including the Bible as opposed to a sexual ethic that, that doesn't have one? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think that if you are committed to someone and this is honestly the person that you're going to be with for life and you love them and you're treating them in a humanizing way, and you want to serve them and you see sex as a way to serve and you see sex as a way to experience something really intense with them that is intimate. I think there are lots of people who are not Christians that have great sex because if Jesus is truth, then when we are living out that truth, even if we don't do it in Jesus name, it still is truth. <laughs> and so, yes, I think that you can, you can certainly experience that outside of Jesus. I think that that's what Jesus points us to. And I would hope that, that those who do follow Jesus would have that to an even greater extent. But I certainly would not say that nobody who knows Jesus can have great sex. Or did I just do the double negative? Now you did it earlier. Did I just do it? Anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, you're pulling out the difference, I guess, between these hard lines that, that if we call it purity culture, that you've got these rules, you've got this line that says no sex before this time and then after that. And it's also a lot of it isn't spoken about. And then these things that you're pointing, pointing out come to the surface where it often is a result of the... I mean, the male dominant nature, perhaps, where it just goes mm -hmm. women's needs are secondary and all, all of these things. But it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me as if you wouldn't be advocating the typical purity culture narrative that's saying you must save sex before marriage. It, it is, are you still holding to, to any kind of rules, I suppose, that used to exist or are you interpreting them in a different way? I think I do. I do believe in a biblical sexual ethic in the sense that I do believe that sex is made for a committed relationship, which I would call marriage. 
I do think that outside of the church, there are people who are just as committed who aren't married. So I think that gets really messy. <laughs> but, you know, I do think that that it is for a committed marriage relationship or committed relationship that is lifelong, however that looks like for people. Um, what I'm not for is the shame that message that goes along with it. Like the message that says, if you don't do that, you're doomed to, for a terrible sex life. Or conversely, mm -hmm. if you do wait for marriage, you're going to have an awesome sex life and a life of tremendous sexual rewards. Um, <laughs> that's just simply not true. And here, let me give you one stat. Here's an interesting stat. You'll like this one. Um, so we took a look at couples where they only ever had consensual sex with each other. Okay, so no other partners and there's no abuse in their past. All right. So they only ever had sex with each other. And um, we looked at what would happen if they had sex before marriage and what would happen if they had sex after marriage. Um, and what we found is that if you waited for the wedding, you were 19% more likely to experience sexual pain. So sex was actually better if you have sex first. And we think the reason is because if you have sex before you're married, you probably have sex because you're aroused. If you wait for the wedding night, you often have sex just because you have to, and it's just not very good. I just think there needs to be a more nuanced conversation about this whole thing. Like we're focused so much on the mm. wedding, but we're not focused on what great sex actually is and on arousal and on how to honor each other and all of that stuff. So, you know, I still do go by a biblical ethic in the sense that I really do think that it is meant for a committed relationship, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to go well if you wait and it doesn't mean it's going to go badly if you don't mm -hmm. it just means that there's more to it than it's not just about rewards or punishments it's about the meaning of your relationship we had um josh harris on the podcast a, a little while ago and started to talk about a little bit more about purity culture and even about like the specific boundaries of purity culture and if you're not familiar with josh harris he wrote the book i kiss dating yeah, goodbye yeah. and that particular yeah. book um, I assume that you're, you're on top of it. She's <laughs> probably read it. Yes. Well read. Yes. Yeah, we haven't read it. So, um, but the, a lot of the conversation, I suppose, was led down this like, well, even specific things within or even dating is problematic. So yeah. when we start to talk and unpack this purity culture and, and you're sort of saying that you still hold on to this ideal of of even perhaps sex before a committed relationship and even you've redefined sex um, mm. as well for us, um, to have those three things. So what does, what does sort of, I suppose, like dating or even like trying to understand what sex in your new definition or, or, or the new definition, mm. what, what does, what does that look like for people who are just getting to know each other still? Mm. Does that mean that the, that the boundaries are now like, like, uh, are closer together now so we've only like oh sex is now means this mm. so now it's like well we can't do these things now because it's not just penis vagina sex it's now intimacy and uh consent and all those things so what does that even look like then for perhaps people who are journeying that or is it like teenagers you got a couple of teenagers yeah they're dating yep What's what do you say to <laughs> what are the rules? Teenagers? What yeah. are the rules? What are the rules? You're taking the yeah. rules off the table. Yeah. Oh no! Well, you know, it's funny. My I have two adult daughters now, both of whom both of them got married in the last five or six years, and you know, as they were walking through, we started their teenage life 
quite into purity culture. And by the time my oldest was 16, I had totally ditched it because I thought it was stupid. But it took me a couple of years to walk through that and figure that out. Um, but uh, what I really told them is that what is going to help you in your marriage is feeling emotionally connected. You want to marry someone that you know you actually like. <laughs> That's very important. And you want to marry someone that you can Good talk stop. to, that you can resolve mm -hmm. conflict with, all of that sort of thing. And part of the problem with getting sexual too early, and multiple studies have shown this, is that you feel close without being close. So there's an artificial feeling of closeness mm -hmm. there. Um, because sexual intimacy can replace emotional vulnerability. And when you're not able to get really emotionally mm. vulnerable with someone, then you don't really know them. And so when people get too sexually active earlier, then you often don't go to the levels of emotional vulnerability and communication that you need to, to truly understand if you actually like this person. <laughs> so, you know, I think mm. that's one of the big things that we talked about is just wisdom. And I think that's, what's missing from the conversation is we don't talk about wisdom. We talk about like what you can do and what you can't do and, and what's too far. And we don't talk about this is the rest of your life. And you want to make sure that when you're 68, you're still going to be happy. <laughs> so this is a pretty big deal. Um, and so how can we be wise about that? And, uh, and so that's just what we, what, what we worked through with our girls and just had those kinds of conversations is, all right, so are you really a good fit? How do we figure out if you're a good fit? You know, how do we sense red flags? It sounds almost are as they if respectful? It, it sounds almost as if it's, there's no, like specific yeah. one size fits all. This is this is what we say there to no teenagers. Yes. It's it's, but it's good hard. questions. And and I don't know whether there's a, like because obviously there's a like a stating goodbye type of book. This is how this is what it looks like mm. for teenagers, or this yeah. is what it looks like for for people who are trying to we find want the their soulmate or whatever. That's kind of what it looks like. But it sounds like there's no specific guidelines on how yes. to do this well it sounds like there needs to be a bit of wisdom a little bit of emotional intelligence um, yes. a little bit of intimacy a little bit of everything is there a way that that can be summed up in a tight little bundle with bows on it that looks nice and presentable that can be sold yes. to the masses yes. like how do we get people on board with this idea yeah. because you can sell I kiss dating goodbye. Yeah, absolutely. Here is a tidy sexual ethic yep. that I say everyone should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose if that's the challenge for you, Sheila, what are you tying it up as? Yeah, that is a really good question because this is what we're actually trying to get away from, right? Is the idea that there is one actual way of doing mm -hmm. things. Um, I think mm -hmm. that if we were to sum everything up, honestly, it would just be that I believe God wants for people a relationship, which is life giving and not soul crushing. And so in your relationship, both in your relationship and in the way that you see your relationship, is that life giving or soul crushing? Because you could be with someone who treats you really well. And yet your view of marriage could be soul crushing. So it's not that the guy you're with is crushing your soul. <laughs> it's that the way that you see marriage is crushing your soul. When you feel like I'm obligated, when you feel like if I don't have sex, he's going to watch porn, 
you know, and even if he's not, but we grow up with these fears. And so it's like, how do we get to the point where we feel free <laughs> and where we feel like, no, this really is life giving. Um, and so I think it's just teaching kids and teaching young adults how to recognize what is good in another person, but also really how to seek out what's the beautiful message that relationships are supposed to be and don't go around threatening people because that's the way that we tend to treat sex lately is let's just threaten people to get them to have sex so the bad stuff doesn't happen and threatening people doesn't work. <laughs> I'm hearing something, two things. I'm hearing some things that's highly controversial that you've just said mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've picked it up. But the thing I think that triggers most people, friends of the show that are listening, if you're disagreeing, that's fantastic and you're still here, that's the point. Um, the thing that's challenging is when you say there is not one rule. And I think a lot of people might agree with that, but then there's a good contingent of people that find that very challenging because it seems to question the very notion of objective truth. And that's why I think from the religious framework, you've got to have, if there is the truth, mm -hmm. it's a narrow, definable one truth. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think this is what we see a lot in the conservative, sexual ethical conservative religion that says, this is the truth and therefore here are the rules. As soon as somebody comes along, maybe like Sheila's saying and saying, listen, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. People are different. We require to ask different questions and go on different levels. That's quite challenging because you're saying to somebody, they might interpret that mm -hmm. as I'm trying to channel how someone else might interpret that. They might be saying, they might be hearing you say there is no truth because it's not a singular mm. truth. And I think that's the challenging element. But then to come to the non-controversial, which maybe people could get around is that as you're saying, if you're talking about a biblical Christian ethic, Jesus was saying, you know, he was always pushing against the law. Mm -hmm. So there is that level of what Sheila's doing, which yeah. is pushing against the law. Whereas mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't come to give you more laws. Yeah. And, and Sheila's saying, how about we don't follow this prescriptive set of rules? We ask these important questions and we redefine, well, what is sex mm -hmm. and what does it involve? And then from there, we can ask more important questions like who does it help? How does it connect? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then maybe from there, that's where it's, it's built on. So it's, I can see two levels. How does that sound? Those two levels I've kind of identified. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I'm kind of between two camps because I, like I said, I still do believe in a biblical sexual ethic in the sense that I do think that sex is meant for marriage. Um, I also think there's mm -hmm. just so many people that are, like you said, really struggling with what that looks like. And I don't want to exclude that those people from what I'm walking. I think that there's a lot more room for more of us to walk together. And so that's where I struggle a bit, you know, because I do, I do want, I think that the world would be a better place <laughs> if we committed to each other and if we kept sex for committed relationships. But I know that committed relationships mean different things to different people now. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people who never get married, but they're just as committed. You know, so what does that mean? So I think that there are a lot of questions mm -hmm. about that. And I guess the big thing that I've been seeing is that sex is something which both has the power to give and the power to destroy. And I believe that God gave us sex as something which is supposed to give 
You know, it's supposed to help you live a huge life, a passionate life, um, embrace life and everything that it is. It's supposed to be something which helps bring you together with your spouse, which makes you feel more alive, which gives you more energy, all those things. But for a lot of people, sex hasn't been that. Sex has been the thing that brings the most shame, that brings the most guilt, that brings the most fear, that leaves you feeling so empty, <laughs> that leaves you feeling so discouraged. Um, and I, I want people who are in that second group that are feeling discouraged, that are feeling like, I guess this was meant for everybody but me, and I'm never going to get there, that there is hope. And that a lot of times that hope mm -hmm. isn't found in just seeing your spouse in a different way, but that that hope may actually come from understanding that the whole way we look at sex has been distorted. And so just give us the freedom to toss some of that stuff mm -hmm. out and ask the hard questions like what you're doing. Um, Cause we just, we just heard some wonderful mm -hmm. stories of women's lives that were really changed and turned around when they were able to let go of certain messages and certain fears. Um, like there was one woman mm -hmm. married 23 years, never had an orgasm, had a lot of sexual pain but initiated sex every 72 hours like she was supposed to because otherwise he would explode or whatever it is that we're told. And, you know, she sat down and talked to him about it literally two decades into the marriage and said, I don't think I can keep doing this. And he said, I don't want you to. Like, I don't want you to do something just because you feel like you have to. Mm. And over the next few years, he proved it to her. Mm. Like he said, if we're ever in the middle of something and you want to stop, I want to stop. Like, I don't ever want you to do something you don't want to do. Mm. And as he proved that to her, it, she said it was like my whole body changed and she could feel it. You know, she stopped having pain. Mm. She actually started to orgasm for the first time. And it was just that freedom to let go of some of these really negative messages. Her husband didn't change. It was just that she had never talked to him about it before. Her husband was still the same guy. He mm. just didn't know that's what she was thinking. And I think there's a lot of people really sad because they've never been able to talk about this stuff because we've believed a lot of things that are lies, but they're so deep inside of us. We don't even realize it. Speaking, like you said, of hard questions, I know some people might be thinking, okay, you're defining like a, a, a new or a different or a more nuanced biblical sexual ethic. Mm -hmm. You're not throwing it all out. So then the question becomes as we go, all right, there's this new sexual ethic here couple of harder questions that people might be trying to go, okay, how does this work in the controversial issues of society? How do you view hookup culture? We had uh, a couple of friends of the show, OnlyFans models, you know, taking nudes, putting them online and making money that way. And they described that as, um, you know, what's the difference between me earning money, being a laborer, I go and teach for a living. They take news. They even really. said that it was fulfilling as well, that it was yeah. something that was good for them. It was good for their clients. It connected with their yeah. clients emotionally. Yeah. Um, they would probably even perhaps even describe what you've described just then with your story of that um, that woman of in that 23-year-long year marriage and only just coming to... I would say that they've even felt this newfound freedom as mm. well mm. through going through this process of taking nudes and selling them online. You're making money from it. Yeah. yeah. How do you view that? from where you sit? I think that that is just dehumanizing, honestly. I think that that's objectifying. I think that a lot of the problem with sex has been 
that we have objectified people and we've commodified sex. So um, why is it, for instance, that we believe that all men struggle with lust? It's every man's battle. That's one of the negative messages that we heard. Well, to lust is just simply to use someone for your sexual gratification. So it's seeing someone as someone that you can use. They are disposable. You get to use them. And that's what steals the life out of sex. Sex is only sex if it's intimate, which means both people matter. And so it's the idea of using someone, of commodifying sex and truly making love, it's not that they're, they're not even um, something that you can exchange for each other. They're polar opposites. You know, like we often say, well, if you don't want him to use porn so much, just have more sex with him. But sex and porn are polar opposites. One is about using and dehumanizing. And one is about celebrating the human in the other person. And I think the more that we commodify and objectify, especially women, the worse this is going to get. And so I would just like us to start viewing everybody as whole people made in the image of God rather than as body parts to use and consume. I think that this, the problem, and that's really the problem with the sex positive message. Like it sounds positive. Oh, we're just celebrating what we can do with our bodies. But as soon as you start commodifying sex, it's no longer intimate. It can't be something which joins. And then it becomes easy to commodify and objectify other people. And in a power situation, that's just not safe. And that's not a, that's not a way that I personally want to run our society. I want to I see people being treated with dignity. Yeah, you've 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 separated a, a two things, and so as I dig into that, you go, okay, well, sex is making love. Sex is this deeper connection. It's not just body parts. It's a meeting of two people. I suppose that's the element of the quote unquote sacred that I mm-hmm. think a lot of Christians get at when they when they kind of recoil at the hookup culture of just like mm-hmm. it's just bodies. It's just it's for you're using something that's for deeper connection as a commodity and as a fulfillment center. So if we were to separate those two things out and go, okay, there's like just biological sex with people just doing it. And then there's making love, this connection. It seems like there's these two things you're pulling out. Is there a problem then if, if someone uh, like maybe friend of the show, Nicole on there, when, when, if they're, if they're saying, or or Kevin, Mm. um, the male only fans model who says, um, if it's consensual and I'm okay with just having sex without this spiritual component and we've both come to it and we both agreed, yep, let's just do it in the biological form and and we don't really care about this connection stuff, but it's consensual and we're okay with it. What's your reaction to that? Again, I, I just think that that is commodifying. Even if you're okay with it, can you be okay with dehumanizing someone? I don't think so. I mean, if people want to do it, obviously they have the freedom to do it. I don't think it's wise in the long term, and I don't think it's going to lead to healthy life. I mean, every study that we have seen, um, Harvard, the Harvard long-term study, that's a really interesting one. They looked at the same people for like over 40 or 50 years, I think. And what they found is that it's connectedness and intimacy that helps people live longer and have less dementia. <laughs> you know, like we, we aren't made to just use other people. We're made for intimacy. Mm. And, you know, you, you drew the distinction between um, marriage and the hookup culture. I wouldn't actually draw that distinction. 
I would draw the distinction just between commodifying versus making love, because I completely believe that you can commodify within marriage. And I think that's what we've done to a large extent. So just because you're married does not mean that you're not objectifying the other person. Mm. Right. So it, it really is how we approach sex. And are we doing it really to know someone and to experience someone together? It's like when you have sex, are you saying I want sex or are you saying I want you? Because that's a big difference. Mm. And and Nicole's uh, the OnlyFans model that we had on Nicole's kind of I suppose pushback on that was that she she engages emotionally with her clients um, and there was so a, she would say she she would say that she does do, she does do that, yeah. that that she does have bring this sacredness and this intimacy into this with the people with paying the people. for her content yeah yeah which which I'm I'm not fully I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that in terms of whether just the fact that there's being money exchanged, I think well, that's, that's feels the, like it's that's the commodification. Yeah. That's the thing. If there's money being exchanged, then there's a commodity, right? Well, yeah. Well, that's the deeper... That's the question that I guess we're circling here is that... And Kevin put it quite poignantly when he mm-hmm. goes, what is the difference between commodifying sex mm-hmm. and an artist, my wife, commodifying her creation art has this like imbued like connectedness and and it's quite sacred in that sense that it's not quite performing a job but you know you're painting for somebody else it's a commodity now it's a piece Mm -hmm. of yourself in that sense yeah uh like what's the difference i suppose is the question the difference is people may think that oh well i get emotionally involved a lot of men are colorblind You know, a lot of men, um, more so men than women, but they honestly can't see certain colors. I have a young friend who's about 10 years younger than me, and he can't see the color red. But he didn't know that. He always said that red was his favorite color. Um, And then one day he went to take the exam for, he was trying out for the Air Force, and they realized that he was colorblind and he couldn't see red. But he'd had no idea. Because red just simply was a different spectrum on the color scheme from him, and he didn't know he was missing out on anything. And when we are reducing sex to just having sex with multiple people and commodifying it, you may think you're being emotionally involved, but trust me (laughs) when I say that really is not intimacy. And I think it's very similar to someone who thinks they know what red is, but they don't. And I, I. Oh yeah, keep going. That's what kind of makes me sad. But there's a whole other aspect of that, which I think is really important to talk about, which is that it might work well for her to do that, but the sex trafficking industry in the world is evil in a way that we can't even fully describe or comprehend. And it's probably responsible for the most evil that is ever done in the world. And when we're contributing to the commodification of sex, we are contributing to sex trafficking, even if we are not personally buying it. When we start to commodify bodies, when we start to commodify sex, then we are contributing to that, which hurts real people. And I think there's a huge justice issue, which does need to come into that conversation as well. Mm. Where does masturbation sit on the sexual ethic? 
Because I suppose there's no human connection with that one. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question in the sense that it, it depends. It depends. Like, <laughs> there's always nuance, right? Um, if it's just simply for play, like, let's say, okay, he's going away on a business trip for three weeks or she's going away on a course for four weeks and they decide they're going to masturbate while they're on the phone, like, live it up, you know? <laughs> that's not a big deal. Um you know, when it's just play, I really don't see it as a big problem. The problem in, in relationship with masturbation is that I hear all the time I get emails from women saying, I catch my husband masturbating in the shower, but he never wants to have sex. And so the question is, is masturbation something which is bringing you together? Or is it something which is a shortcut mm. to avoid intimacy? And mm masturbation can be a way to bring you together. I mean, maybe she masturbates so that she can figure out what feels good so she can show him or they masturbate together or whatever. That's all good and fine. But if she's masturbating so that she doesn't have to do something with him, if he's masturbating so that he doesn't have to worry about making her feel good, then you're really shortcutting intimacy. Um, and, hmm. and I think that's the problem. So it just depends what we're talking about. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I like the questions that you bring to the table from, because I am hearing as much as it's not a hard set rule of a sexual ethic, this, that, the other, I'm still hearing a consistency in the approach. It's all relational. It's all about that connection. And final, final question. Um, we, if we go with, you've got a biblical, you're still holding on to the Bible. Many who hold the Bible sit in the, opposed to same-sex relationship and same-sex marriage where do you sit on that people might be wondering how then to place that because if i was to apply what i'm hearing i'd go well if it's about connection if it's about uh, intimacy then it doesn't sound like you would have a problem with gay marriage then you know what? This is one of those issues I haven't looked at enough <laughs> and I need to. I just, uh, you know, uh, we've been changing yeah. our minds on a lot of things in the last few years. I'm not comfortable saying what I think. I need to look at it more. I have a really hard time. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just know so many healthy same sex couples that that's kind of where I'm at right now, but I need to look at it more yeah. to try to see whether mm. I would be inclusive or not. But it's I not something that I like that making lines on. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sheila, thanks so much for taking so much time. We've had a few technical difficulties that has really made it quite difficult. But thanks thanks for, for sharing your journey and your thoughts and your honest opinions. Is there anything you want to add to kind of like as you sum up, you know, you, 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 that you might have missed? Um, I think I think what I would just say is that there's a lot we're we're in a weird world. I kind of feel like everybody right now is jumping without a parachute for all kinds of reasons. You know, so many people are examining what they used to believe and they're giving up on it and they're wondering if it has any relevance for them at all anymore and how do we figure it all out? Um and I guess I would just say don't be afraid to ask the questions, but also don't be don't feel like just because one thing was bad, everything has to be bad. You know, I, we've walked away from some major churches <laughs> in the last few years as a family. Um, we've walked away from some church communities. 
But as I have done so, I've also found a lot more richness in a lot of the parables and in a lot of things Jesus says. I find sometimes I can't read um, the epistles, but I like reading the gospels. So <laughs> there's just a lot of life there. And I think everybody needs to figure out where life giving is. And, um, and I don't know what that looks like for everybody, but just remember that even if life even if you're ditching what you used to have, <laughs> don't be afraid to ask where was the good? Because sometimes there was good there, even if people didn't treat it right. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but I don't know. I just think we're all jumping and we don't have a parachute. We're trying to figure out not how not to go splat. So <laughs> hold it loosely. Well, thank you so much, Sheila, again. Where can people find uh, your resources, your books? Can they follow you on Instagram? Give us a bit of a plug of, of your stuff. Yeah, so my website is tolovehonorandvacuum.com and we have the Bear Marriage Podcast every Thursdays, which is fun. We've been deconstructing all the marriage advice lately. Uh, and then the book, The Great Sex Rescue, is just everywhere. I know it's in Koorong. I don't know um, where else it is in Australia, but... Uh, uh, probably anywhere you buy books, you should be able to find it. The Great Sex Rescue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much. If you're listening to the show and you are disagreeing with everything you're hearing and you've made it over an hour and a half, Dave. Wow. i got to delete technical difficulties, but <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a long time. You're still here? Send me a DM. Mm-hmm. You deserve the gold emoji that I will send to you. Because if you can make it to the end of an episode with someone you disagree with, that's the Ideas Digest way. Mm-hmm. If you can understand, hopefully, where Sheila's coming from, what she's talking about, even if you disagree, agree, mm-hmm. disagree, doesn't matter. Hopefully, you understand a little bit more about how Sheila sees the world as we're exploring on this, like an uh, uh, updated Christian sexual ethic. Um, so, thanks for thanks for listening and making it to the whole episode. It, if you made it to the end, it's obviously your moral obligation to rate and review the podcast. Uh, get as many reviews as we can but thanks for listening and we will catch you all in the next episode see you later